So over the past 200 years, the Jewish community around the world has faced one of its greatest challenges of assimilations in our history. Jews, of course, are almost three and a half thousand years old. We've been around for a very, very long time. We've faced various challenges. We've faced challenges of assimilation. We've faced challenges of persecution, wars, um, annihilation, threats of annihilation. We've faced many, many challenges, many of which we commemorate and we speak about in our various, we've spoken about in our various classes on historical topics. The last 200 years has been very challenging for the Jewish people in that we faced a grave threat of assimilation. It was a combination of a number of things. It was moving into the modern era with modernization, which included urbanization, people moving away from the shtetls, from the small villages and Jews moving out of the villages and towns. Um, it, was, it coincided in the mid-19th century with the emancipation of Jews, where Jews were granted freedom, and that would be a great topic for a class, emancipation of Jews um, in the 19th century. And uh, it also... In, included the rise of secularism in the mid-19th century, which became a very, very strong force for about 100 years. It's much weaker than it was in the late 19th, early 20th century, where there was a very, very strong movement, especially among young people, towards secularization away from religion. Um, and so was, this was both, both among Jews and non-Jews around the world, but it impacted the Jewish community. And uh, along with that uh, was also the great change, the move to the New World, um, away from Eastern Europe and the Middle East to um, Western Europe, um, North America, um, Israel, and other places. So as a result, this started quickly, this move of assimilation of Jews moving away from Jewish tradition started in the early 19th century. It, but it, expand, it started in Western Europe, really, where Jews first received emancipation and where secularization and urbanization was very strong in the mid-19th century, but it quickly expanded all across the Jewish world. So by 1950, after about 100 years of continuous assimilation, um, also at the end of World War II, which included the Holocaust, six million Jews were killed, the decimation, uh, decimation of Jews, Jewish life in Europe, uh, the creation of the Soviet Union, which decimated Jewish life in what had been the largest Jewish community in the world, um, the creation of the State of Israel. Um, all those things happened um, in the um, late first half of the 20th century. So by 1950, the vast, vast majority of Jews in the world, which probably numbered about 12 million then after the Holocaust and other, um, and other horrors, um, the vast majority of Jews in the world were no longer observant, committed to traditional Torah Judaism. Um, and most Jews were no longer following most of the commandments. Most Jews in the world were no longer Shabbos observant. Most Jews in the world were no longer keeping kosher um, and were not observing most of the Jewish holidays and were keeping very few, if any, commandments, the very large numbers of intermarriage of Jews marrying out of the faith entirely, raising their children without any Jewish education, or with bare minimal, maybe once or twice a week Jewish education. And so there was um, really a very, very strong move to assimilation. And there were many 
political pundit, uh, many uh, pundits or um, historians who predicted the absolute end to traditional, or what they like to call orthodox, although I don't like that word, um, Judaism. Um, traditional Judaism would disappear. Observant, um, traditional observant Judaism would disappear. There were very, very few left. The numbers were probably in the tens of thousands out of 12 million Jews at that point. It was not very large. Um, at that point, by 1950, the largest observant traditional Jewish communities were in the northeast of the United States, um, mostly in um, the New York tri-state area, um, also a little further, uh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, some other large cities around the U.S., Chicago, Los Angeles had a very, very small community at the time, um, and a few, a few others in, in Canada, South America, a little bit in Western Europe, and then a significant community in Israel. So it was mostly in Israel and in the um, tri-state, what they call tri-state area. That's where most of those tens of thousands of still observant Jews lived at the time. And with the destructions of all the old Jewish communities in Eastern Europe, as well as almost all the old Jewish communities in the Middle East, most of the Jewish communities in the Middle East were thrown out of their homes, most of the Jews were thrown out of their homes following Israel's declaration of independence in 1948. Um, the entire Jewish community of Yemen, the entire Jewish community of Iraq, the entire Jewish community of Libya was thrown out in 1952, of Algeria in 1960. Um, so many of these Jewish communities were totally decimated. Um, there was almost nothing left of the old Jewish community. So in response, leaders of what would be traditional Judaism, what was traditional Judaism, um, faced real challenges. What do you do? How do you keep Jew Jewish life alive, traditional Judaism alive, uh, with so few left still holding the torch of the Torah that our ancestors had held for thousands of years? So many Jewish leaders felt that the solution to this was to build insular communities for the faithful. What they did is they built neighborhoods, some in existing neighborhoods, but, ex but encouraged everyone to move into a single neighborhood, um, whether in Brooklyn, whether in New Jersey, whether in upstate New York, um, in Israel, to move into particular towns and cities and neighborhoods, and to shut out, essentially, to build these insular communities that shut out access to challenges around them. These communities would build their own schools, synagogues, social institutions, um, essentially be totally self-sufficient, and um, they were large enough to essentially care for themselves, care for each other, and be totally shut out from the outside world, be totally shut out from not, not go to school among others, um, not go to um, work mostly in their own neighborhoods, in their own communities, um, live in their own insular communities, um, not have any access to popular media, popular culture, make their own newspapers, their own, um, uh, their own magazines, essentially live in their own insular communities. And a number of these communities were built, um, somewhat successfully were built um, back then in the 1950s, both here in the tri-state area of the United, almost entirely in the tri-state area of the United States, as well as in Israel, and a few others in London, in um, Manchester and Antwerp, a few other, Paris, a few other small towns and cities in the world. 
But for these Jewish leaders, they saw the rest of the Jews of the world, millions of Jews who were no longer observant of Jewish traditions, who had lost touch with their faith, many of whom had by now been raised without Jewish knowledge, so barely read Hebrew, let alone even knew what it took to observe Shabbat or observe kosher um, or follow Jewish traditions. Um, probably had never even read the Torah cover to cover, let alone open a book of Talmud. And they saw these majority, these millions of Jews, as simply lost to history. They were lost. They were gone. We would build insular communities from scratch. And the rest of the millions of Jews will be lost forever. They will eventually assimilate, um, whether building their own um, watered-down versions of Judaism or entirely disappear as has happened at various times in our history, various groups of Jews have simply assimilated and disappeared. And they figured that would happen to the vast majority and we'll build a new Judaism from scratch. There was, however, one man who took a totally different approach. And that was the Rebbe. The Rebbe was born in Ukraine in 1902, became the leader of, he fled during the Holocaust. He fled to the United States where his in-laws already lived. Sorry? Which city? In Nikolaev. It's in southern Ukraine on the, um, on the Black Sea. Um, pretty close to where the fighting is happening today. And uh, he, uh, he grew up in Dnepro, which is also a city in southern Ukraine. Um, he was raised there, but then he, moved, he fled the Soviet Union in 1927 and then um, lived in Germany and France for some time. And then in 1940, 41, was able to get a passage and visa to the United States and came here. And uh, in 1950, he took over his father-in-law, who was the Rebbe, the leader of the Chabad Hasidic movement, um, who had himself fled the Holocaust in 1940 and uh, come here to the United States, where there was already a significant Chabad community in Brooklyn. And um, so the Rebbe took over the community in Brooklyn. But the Rebbe and his father-in-law already had this attitude to some extent, but the Rebbe believed that his role was not to lead the remnants of what had once been a massive Chabad community in, that had lived in Russia, in, um, in the Russian Empire prior to World War I. There had been a massive Chabad community with hundreds of thousands of members um, in Russia, across Belarus, northern Ukraine, um, Lithuania, what today would be Lithuania, eastern Poland. Um, and there had met, much of it had been destroyed through the Sovietization and the Soviet Union that banned Judaism, that banned religion, as well as through the Holocaust and through assimilation. Many of the followers had kind of either dropped Judaism, been killed, and there was only remnants left. And so the Rebbe, unlike other of his contemporaries, did not see his role as just kind of rebuilding a Chabad community um, in his center in Brooklyn, and there was also a Chabad community in Israel and in other places at the time, but rather, he saw his role was to ensure that the millions of Jews who had dropped Jewish observance um, remain part of the Jewish people, that they don't assimilate, that they don't be lost forever. He saw a role in ensuring that every single one of the Jew, every single Jew in the world, no matter how they were raised, no matter what their beliefs are, no matter what their background is, um, no matter where they live, be taught about their heritage and be given the opportunity to embrace Judaism and to be brought back to Judaism. He saw an end to the 
Um, forces of secularization were not as strong in 1950 as they had been previously. And he saw an opportunity, <laughs> an end to persecution, Soviet persecution. Um, well, there was still Soviet persecution in the Soviet Union, but an end outside of the Soviet Union for those that had managed to get out. Um, he saw it, it freedom here in the United States and Western Europe and other Western countries and Israel. And he saw an opportunity to rebuild Jewish life, but not just by building an insular community, but by reaching out to each and every Jew and teaching each and every Jew about Judaism and giving them the opportunity to re-embrace Judaism. And so the, Re the Rebbe was inspired and he often quoted the verse in Isaiah chapter 43 that says, Va'atem teluktu le'echad echad b'nei Yisrael. That in the future times, you will be plucked one by one, Israel. Every member of Israel, one by one, God will pluck each and every single Jew and make sure that no one is left behind. And so we have a responsibility to each and every Jew. The Rebbe would often quote Rashi on Parshas Nitzavim, who quotes this verse and explains that it will be as if God holds the hand of each and every Jew and brings him back, and her, him and her back. That's what Rashi, the classical commentary, how he explains this verse. So God is holding every single Jew's hand and making sure that no Jew will be lost to Judaism. So it is our role as God's chosen people, as God's emissaries, as God's messengers here on earth, to ensure that every single Jew is accounted for, every Jew at least is given the opportunity to embrace their religion, and nobody is lost to the Jewish people. Every single Jew is accounted for. Um, and the Rebbe would quote the um, Torah, the uh, Talmud tells us that at the time of the giving of the Torah, it says that we, we the Torah tells us that not only were we responsible for ourselves, but we were responsible for every other Jew. In other words, it's not the responsibility of a Jew to make sure they themselves fulfill their covenant with God. The covenant that we made with God at Mount Sinai is a communal covenant for the entire Jewish people. So every single Jew is, re is then part of this covenant. And my responsibility is not only that I keep the covenant with God, but I need to ensure that every single Jew keeps their covenant because we're all in this together. We call this arvut, um, guarantor, we're all guarantors for each other. In fact, the Talmud tells us that because we are all responsible to ensure every other Jew keeps a mitzvah, that is why we can do a mitzvah on behalf of another Jew. For example, it's a mitzvah to do the Kiddush on Friday night. But you don't all need to do it. One person can do it for everyone. Why? Because since we're responsible for everyone, we can do mitzvahs, not all mitzvahs, but many mitzvahs we can do on behalf of other people. As long as they're listening, we can do it for them because we are all responsible together. We're all in this together. So since we are responsible for every Jew, and since God holds every Jew by the hand to make sure they don't get lost, it is our responsibility not just to build our own insular community, to rebuild Jewish life for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren, 
But it is our responsibility not to forget about the millions of Jews who, for whatever reason, were raised without Jewish knowledge, without a Jewish experience, without observance, or perhaps were raised with it, but walked away from it, left it. And so, <coughs> and so in that vein, the Rebbe inspired his followers to go to places without established communities and inspire Jews. The Rebbe's father-in-law actually originally started this, um, inspiring his followers, telling his followers to go out, build communities, build schools for Jewish education around the United States. He sent many of his followers all over to build a network, built a network of schools, um, and sent people to inspire others, um, and including he sent, the previous Rebbe sent Rabbi Reichik, um, Barry knew him, here to Los Angeles to help build the Jewish community here in Los Angeles. And he sent people all over, and the Rebbe continued that work um, and expanded it. Um, right after his father-in-law's death in 1950, he, um, at the time, there were many Chabad refugees in DP camps. Following the um, World War II, many Jews were left without a home. They had been kicked out of their home, lost their homes, um, and many, there were hundreds of Chabad followers who were still stuck in DP camps at the time, um, in Germany, in France, um, and, or in Western Europe. And the uh, Rebbe instructed a number of his followers to go to Morocco because of the Moroccan Jewish community was then facing a threat of assimilation. Um, and so many of them moved to Morocco where they built schools, um, where there was a lack of Jewish schools all across the country. Uh, for the Jews that were still living in Morocco at the time. He sent, then sent people to Tunisia. He then continued sending. He sent people to, uh, he sent followers to England, to France, to Italy, to Belgium, to Canada, to um, Australia, to South Africa, Argentina, Brazil. He started sending in the 1950s already, sending followers, telling them to go build Jewish communities. Go inspire other Jews. Go find Jews and inspire them. He sent followers across the United States to every major city in the United States um, that had a sizable Jewish community to reach out to others and to inspire them. In the mid-1960s, he sent Rabbi Kunin to California, um, to Los Angeles, to help inspire further the work that Rabbi Reichik was already doing, inspire Jews here in Los Angeles. Uh, Rabbi Kunin was very creative. Um, and in 1969, he bought a building um, on Gailey Avenue outside of across the street from UCLA. And um, he built it as a center for students at UCLA. And he called it Chabad House. And the Rebbe liked the name. And the Rebbe decided that the Chabad House name from now on will be a franchise. And um, everybody, every new Chabad center opened after 1969 will be called by the same name, Chabad House, a Chabad center. Um, and so, um, and these centers were built not as synagogues, um, they housed synagogues as well, but essentially as Jewish community centers, centers that Jews can, um, can come, can be invited, where there will be programs, classes, um, opportunities to study, um, uh, fun programs, holiday programs, services, synagogues, synagogue services, but always unlike synagogues where you need 
um, where you need to pay many, most synagogues in the United States today, where you need to be a member and be essentially, it's like a club where you need to be a member in order to be part of it, open synagogues where anyone can come in and serve. And so the role of these Chabad houses, these Chabad houses quickly opened uh, around the world and were continued to grow and grow. Today there are over 3,500 Chabad centers around the world uh, serving millions um, of Jews. Uh, more than 120 120 Chabad houses have opened this year alone. Um, that's at a rate of about one every three days. Uh, another Chabad center is open. We previously did a class, um, you may recall, about the development of the Chabad houses, and we spoke about the development of the, of the Rebbe's outreach. I'm not going to go into the details, but today um, Pew has done does various, Pew Research does various uh, Jewish surveys, and in their recent Jewish surveys they've been asking about Chabad involvement, and uh, what they find is, found is that majority of Jews today um, have some sort of involvement with Chabad. So the Rebbe has been very, very much successful in ensuring that Jews will not be left behind. Every Jew is at least given this opportunity to um, and we're looking to reach every single Jew. We're getting there. We still have a long way to go. But at least most Jews are already involved in Chabad in some, in some way or another um, and have this opportunity to study, to grow, to learn more about Judaism, to observe mitzvahs. The, Re the Rebbe later started uh, mitzvah campaigns to encourage Jewish men to, wear to put on the tefillin, to encourage Jewish women to light Shabbat candles, to encourage people to, and various other mitzvahs, um, that the Rebbe encouraged that we get other Jews to do to follow the, to follow the commandments and as well as to teach Torah, that we open classes, as we have here, uh, to teach Torah, to teach about Judaism, so that the, everybody has the opportunity. Is the Chabad in uh, Westwood still there? Yeah, it's still there. Yes, it is. It's across the street from camp from UCLA, on Gailey Avenue. It's still there. It's a bigger building. They it was burned. It, it was burned down in the eighties, and it was rebuilt. I can't miss it. There's a big menorah in front of it. I can't miss it. I can't miss it. Used to live on Gailey Avenue. Oh yeah. When I first came to America, that's where she lived. So. So central to the philosophy of the Chabad houses and the Shluchim, the Shluchim are the families that the Rebbe has sent around the world. Today there are close to 6,000 families that are serving in the various Chabad organizations around the, around the world. Um, most of them now, as I said, in New York for a conference, most of the men. Um, and the Rebbe once explained that central to these, the philosophy of Chabad and Shluchim and those who operate them, is the value of every individual Jew. The Rebbe explained that we, his followers are to work different than re normal community activists or normal community organizers. Usually what happens is activists or community leaders are looking at the big picture. They want to build a community. 
You want to build a community, you want to build a synagogue, so you get a group of people together, you get families that are, that want, that are interested, you invite more families, and you essentially build this synagogue. Or you want to build a school, you feel there's a need for a school. So you build a school, and you invite various families, and you build the organization. Or that's the way you build organizations. You build the organization, someone has a dream, someone has a vision of the kind of, or a group of people have a dream or vision of the kind of organization that you want, and they build the organization. That is not how Chabad works. The, the Rebbe said our approach is, our goal is people. We focus on people. We are, as God does, our job is to take each person by the hand and help them along, help lead them. Our job is people. So we reach out to people. We meet people. We encourage them to do more mitzvahs, to reconnect to their Jewish heritage, to learn more about Judaism, to observe Shabbos, come to a Shabbos dinner, come to a service, put on wrap the tefillin. We connect to people and help people. Now, once you're connecting to people and you want to impact them positively, then when necessary, you build a synagogue for the people. You build schools. You build community centers. But the buildings and the organizations are a growth of our working with individuals. So Chabad is not centered on the community, on the group, but our goal is each and every individual. And for that reason, the Rebbe encouraged that we focus on people, on individuals. And we should go, if an individual is in need or we can help a person, we should focus on helping people. And, um, and particularly in helping our fellow Jews in their whether physical needs or observance of Torah. So when a Jew is in need, we get a call from anyone. Somebody would like to, whether somebody we need, somebody is dying, we need to help them. Somebody has died, we need to bury them. Someone wants to get married. Somebody wants to do a bar mitzvah. Someone wants to learn about Judaism. We connect to the person. In other places, you need to first be a member, right? You got to first be a member, part of the organization, and then we'll talk to you. Till then, we don't talk. You ever said no? Our role is people. We connect to each and every person, which is why we go out there. Uh, we don't just build a building, but we go out. Uh, back when people used to shop in supermarkets, people don't do that anymore, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> most of the people that most people shopping in the supermarket today are Instacarts, but. Uh, when back when people shopped in supermarkets, we used to stand in the supermarkets. Some of you may have met us there um, and meet people. We go to the fairs. Some of you have helped us there at the fairs where we meet people and connect to people. And we do that a lot. Our goal is to meet people, reach out to people, and we're focused on individuals. Yes, we build an organization, but that is just to help uh, provide for the individuals. And that's always been the primary role of the Chabad Shluchim and the Chabad centers has always been focused on the individual, on ensuring that every single individual is cared for and no one is left behind. The Rebbe himself spent a lot of time of his own time, although he was leading a very large community movement and a very large with thousands, tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of followers. And um, he was leading a large organization. 
uh, very large organization. Nevertheless, he spent much of his time each day answering letters. People would write letters to him, and he would receive letters, hundreds of letters each day, and he would answer each and every letter. He had a team that helped him do it, but he would answer each and every letter, um, and a personally answer each letter. Um, he also spent, for much of his leadership years, starting in 1950, he spent three nights every week, the entire night, he would spend meeting people. You could get a private audience with the Rebbe. Anyone could get a private audience for many decades, um, uh, three nights a week. And uh, it might be at a uh, kind of early morning hour, but the Rebbe would spend all night meeting people, three nights a week. He didn't sleep very much. Uh, but he would meet individuals. In the later years, when he stopped the meetings, because uh, uh, as he got older and the um, his people who wanted to meet him, there were more people. He moved to distributing dollar bills to tzedakah. He would give out dollar bills, which he had done for many years. He would give out dollar bills every Sunday to people to give to charity. And um, anybody could come by. There would be very, very long lines um, that would come by. Usually a couple thousand people would come by each Sunday. He would do it every Sunday, starting at about um, 11 a.m., he would, and people would all day, all afternoon, he would, people would come by, and anybody could come by, he would give them a dollar, he would bless them, and anybody could ask anything they wanted. They had a couple moments to ask anything they wanted, and he spoke to a couple thousand people each week. And he did this until he um, got sick in 1992, um, focused really on the individual. And he really reached out and cared for each and every individual, um, and many times he would follow up. People would tell him about a complaint or something, something was wrong, they needed his help, they asked for, um, uh, they, uh, they asked for um, his help with various things, and he would always, um, uh, he uh, and he would always follow up. He would, you know, months later, tell his secretary to give them a call, call this individual, that individual, see what happened, right? Because he cared for the individual, looked out for each and in each and every individual. Rabbi Kunin, the one I was talking about before, who started the first Chabad house um, in Westwood, um, tells the story that his family lived in the Bronx. He was studying, he was from a Chabad family, and was studying in a Chabad yeshiva. And um, his, um, the Rebbe, every year before Passover, would give out matzah. People wanted matzah from the Rebbe. They was extra special. So they would give out matzah. So he went past the Rebbe on Passover in the afternoon uh, before Passover and on the eve of Passover. And uh, he got a matzah for his family who lived in the Bronx. And he was planning to take the subway from Brooklyn to the Bronx. Um, and the Rebbe asked him, can you do me a favor? Can you give matzah to another family in the Bronx? Sure. He was happy to do so. And so the Rebbe gave him another matzah for this other family. And uh, the secretary gave him the address. And so he got on the subway and he found the, uh, he found where this place was. He was quite a distance from where he, where, where he was going. But he took, he went, he, he made it to this place. He didn't have much time before the holiday. Um, to, and it was in a rundown neighborhood in the Bronx. I guess much of the Bronx is run down. And um, it, it was in a um, 
project in one of the um, uh, one of the project developments, and he climbs up or the stairs and uh, knocks on the door, and uh, it is opened by a fellow who is covered in tattoos. Not a very Jewish thing, right? And uh, looks like a very very poor, you know, home. The fellow opens the door and he tells him, "I have matzah from the Rebbe." So the man welcomes the man welcomes him in, and uh, says, "Come on in." And uh, he inside there is a woman over there who is pregnant and two little girls, and he notices that both of the girls are blind, and he sees on the table is bread. It's clearly this family was not ready for Passover. And so he felt, he was 16 years old, but he felt that if the Rebbe had sent him to bring matzah to this family, then he must, the Rebbe didn't just want him to bring matzah because they don't, wouldn't know how to make a Seder. So he decided he would do a Seder too. So he clears the table, puts down the matzah. He um, found some lettuce and he, um, they sat down, they didn't have any kosher wine. He, they sit down and he sits down with the family and he goes through the whole Haggadah with them and they eat the matzah and tells them the story of the Exodus. They eat the matzah, they eat lettuce, the maror, they go through the whole Seder. And at the end of the Seder, he asks the fellow, how did you know, how did the Rebbe know you? And he said, well, he works in a, um, he works in a slaughterhouse. And he's Jewish, but he works in a slaughterhouse and uh, doesn't, that's his, he doesn't get paid very much. That's why he lives the way he does. And uh, he, had, he has these two girls that are blind. Um, and his wife got pregnant and he was afraid that his next child would be blind as well. And so he was talking to one of the shechtim, one of the ritual slaughterers in the slaughterhouse. And he told him that he should write to the Rebbe and ask him for a blessing. So he wrote to the Rebbe and asked the Rebbe for a blessing. And the Rebbe responded that he should um, have faith in God. And if he has faith in God, God will, um, God will provide for him and will ensure that his child will be, will, be, um, will, will, will be born able to see. And so he, but he said he wasn't sure what that meant. How do you have faith in God? But now that he, the Rebbe sent over matzah, and now that he heard the Seder, and he learned the story of the Exodus, which he didn't know much about, and he's learned all about his Jewish heritage, now he can start observing his Jewish heritage. He knows more about it. And so here you see the Rebbe's concern for this one. And then only late at night did he finally end up going home, walking home the long distance. He could only walk at this point because it was the holiday, and going to his own family Seder. And so you see over here, the Rebbe's concern was for each and every individual, no matter whom they were. Um, the Rebbe believes we should reach out to each and every person. As part of this mission, to reach out to each and every Jew, um, because we are all responsible for each other, we are responsible for each and every Jew, the Rebbe also insisted that nobody is beyond repair. Um, the Rebbe reached out to prominent secular Jews, the prominent anti-religious Jews, um, prominent Jews from other streams or other Jewish groups that are non-traditional. Uh, just last night, I heard the story how 
the Rebbe and one of his followers, uh, Rabbi Herschel Fogelman, um, built a relationship with Rabbi Alexander Schindler, who was the um, president of the reform movement um, in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and the Rebbe built a relationship with him and even invited him to come visit him. And Rabbi Schindler came to visit the Rebbe with his son at a Fabrengen, at a gathering where the Rebbe would speak publicly. Um, and the Rebbe um, connected with Rabbi Schindler over there um, and really connected with him, even though he was the leader of the reform movement and they obviously had very different views on Judaism and um, Jewish theology. Um, but in one time when Rabbi Schindler wrote that the Rebbe sees him as less than a Jew because he was a, the leader of the reform movement, um, the Rebbe responded very strongly, protested that there's no such thing as any Jew who is less than a Jew. Every Jew is 100% a Jew, and uh, every Jew is part of our people, and uh, you know, our, our brothers and sisters, we're all one, we're all one, one group. Um, so the Rebbe you know, reached out to each and every person. Um, the Rebbe even encouraged someone. There was a one time, the, um, I may have told this before, um, the leader of the World Jewish Congress was a fellow called um, Israel Singer. Um, and Israel Singer would travel often to the Soviet Union as part of the movement to help Soviet Jews. He would often visit the Rebbe, who led a large underground network um, in the Soviet Union. Many Jewish leaders who traveled to the Soviet Union would coordinate with the Rebbe when they did. And he came to the Rebbe, he once told the Rebbe about one of his trips, and he mentioned that somebody had brought him one of the, um, an old um, Jewish leader in, the, in Moscow had brought him to visit a fellow called Lazar Kaganovich. Lazar Kaganovich um, is the, was, probably has the um, uh, no, notoriety of being the greatest Jewish mass murderer, um, at least in recent history. Um, he was a right-hand man of Stalin, uh, responsible for the death, probably of millions. Um, and uh, a terrible, terrible individual. And uh, he, had met, so he, had, he had met him, not something he was proud of. Um, he was still alive. This was in the 1990. He was still alive. Um, and so the, um, the Rebbe asked Israel Singer that he should go, next time he goes to Moscow, to go back and visit Lazar Kaganovich again and ask him if he regrets what he had done and tell him that he should write an article expressing regret for what he had done in order to do teshuva, in order to repent. And so Israel Singer did go back to Lazar Kaganovich. He did not regret what he had done. He still, till the bitter end, he um, did not regret and unfortunately he died a peaceful death. Um, in his old age. Um, well, he probably should have been tried and um, punished for his crimes, but um, the Rebbe still encouraged him to at least repent, to change his ways, and at least publicly, you know, regret what he had done in the past. And um, similarly, another example, there was a famous, uh, you may recall, famous um, self-hating Jew um, who was a grand chess master, Bobby Fischer. You may recall him, very famous. Um, he won um, the tournament for the United States. And um, he was Jewish, but he refused 
Two, um, he refused to acknowledge that he was Jewish. He went so far as to sue newspapers that called him Jewish for defamation. Um, and the Rebbe once um, told Shmuel Ryshevsky, who was a famous chess master and a Shabbos observant chess master and had a relationship with Bobby Fischer, told him that he should go to Bobby Fischer and um, he should encourage him to re-embrace his Judaism. Bobby Fischer did not, but the Rebbe at least tried, did not give up on any individual, did not give up on anyone. No matter who they are or what they had done, the Rebbe did not dismiss the Rebbe did not dismiss anyone. In fact, um, while the Rebbe's followers in Israel were very involved in um, Israeli politics, um, in um, encouraging the Israeli government to do things that would follow Jewish laws, Jewish values, um, and that included um, encouraging things that um, certain Israeli politicians were vehemently against, um, and uh, you know, were very upset the Rebbe's mixing into Israeli politics, um, given that he was not an Israeli citizen at all. And so, um, and one of the Rebbe's greatest detractors was a woman called Shlomit Aloni. Um, Israelis would recognize her name. She was a, um, the leader of the far-left party in the 1980s. And um, the Rebbe's uh, followers would still, although she often spoke against the Rebbe and told the Rebbe to mix out of what was going on in Israel, and disagreed with the Rebbe's views on what Israel should be doing on various religious things um, and um, on various political things that the Rebbe commented on. She, um, the Rebbe's followers still would visit her regularly and um, would help her, um, helped her with various things, um, and even um, uh, and would give, bring her matzah before Passover, bring her a little of an etrog before Sukkot, and uh, following the Rebbe's death, they, in the Israeli parliament um, did a session in honor of the Rebbe um, in 1994. And to everyone's surprise, she got up and she spoke about the Rebbe and about her connection with the Rebbe and how the Rebbe had cared for her and looked out for her and took care of her religious needs. Even though she was a secularist and very anti-religious, the Rebbe still cared for her. And even though they had strong disputes politically, the Rebbe still looked out for her um, and the Rebbe still cared for her. And so it was really the Rebbe's message that no matter who they are, every single person, we must reach out to each and every individual. So the Rebbe's, the Rebbe's message continues today, and uh, we are continuing the Rebbe's message, and really each one of us can, and that is that it's not enough for, just for us to look out for ourselves and our own Jewish lives and our own you know, observance, which we need to do as well. We have to care for ourselves, too. But we have to be concerned about each and every individual. Everyone comes in contact with other Jews. Everyone has neighbors, friends, relatives, co-workers, acquaintances, everyone comes in contact with other Jews. When you do, invite them to be involved in Jewish life. Invite them to shul. You have the organizations are built for you. It's easy today. Invite them to come to our Sunday morning class. Invite them to come to other classes. Invite them to come to your own house for a Shabbat dinner to celebrate Shabbat together. And make sure, remember that your responsibility is not just for yourself, but you have a responsibility to each and every Jew, ensuring that each and every Jew is not 
forgotten, is not lost to the Jewish people. As Isaiah says, you will be gathered one by one. Or as the Rashi says, Hashem will take each and every person by the hand and bring them back um, to the fold. And we have to do so as well, bring back each and every Jew. It doesn't mean that they, we need to make them necessarily. It's our role to ensure that each person observes all 613 commandments. But we have to encourage each Jew to do as much as inspire them to do as much as we can inspire them to do. So we have to make sure to reach out to each and every one, not just think of ourselves, but look at the people around us and bring them in, bring them back to Torah and back to Hashem.